I'm Lonnie Diane Rich. This is How Story Works, and today we're going to talk about Aaron Sorkin's kind of messed up masterpiece, A Few Good Men. All right, before I get started on today's discussion, I want to let you guys know that there is some cursing from clips in the movie, and I, in turn, get a little into the spirit and am a little salty myself. So I just want to let you know if you are listening to this episode of How Story Works in the car with kids, you may want to reconsider that, unless you want me to teach them how to swear, in which case, go for it. You're all set. Before we dive into A Few Good Men, I want to talk a bit about the personal relationship between the creator and the critic. Now, this isn't to say that I have a personal relationship with Aaron Sorkin. We share an alma mater, Syracuse University, and I once had his best friend's daughter in my class and only discovered this fact when we were discussing the West Wing and I was criticizing Aaron Sorkin pretty fairly. But still, I won't say I wasn't a little intimidated that she was going to go to dinner and be like, hey, Uncle Aaron, my professor says you're shit at writing romantic relationships, which, you know, fair enough. He really is. But I wasn't exactly planning on telling him that, even through a third party. The thing is, despite not really having any kind of relationship to Aaron Sorkin at all, I do kind of have a relationship with him, the same way you all do with the artists you admire. When someone creates something, they leave a part of themselves within the work that the readers connect with. As fans and appreciators, we need to understand that this is a one-way relationship. But at the same time, we have to accept that we have real feelings about these creators, and that can affect the critique. In recent years, I have realized that I don't like to have a two-way relationship with the people I critique. I've done some interviews with writers and have gotten to know them a bit through those interviews, and now I find that when I critique their work, I feel really bad if I don't absolutely love everything they do. And if it's a choice between having a two-way relationship with this person I admire greatly, or being able to avoid the guilt and complication when I talk about their work, I choose no guilt. As such, I don't conduct interviews with creators whose work I critique anymore, and I've pulled back from making contact with the ones I've spoken to already. For the record, the people I've spoken to have been absolutely lovely, but I'm also afraid that my personal adoration of these people will affect the way that I talk about their work. So overall, I think it's a good idea for me to keep my distance. So back to my personal one-way relationship with Aaron Sorkin. I admire the hell out of Aaron Sorkin. I think his work is amazing. He's one of the most musical writers I've ever had the pleasure to enjoy. No big surprise, I believe he majored in musical theater while at Syracuse. And I think his ability to write dialogue is unmatched. His character work is incredible. And while some of it is a little stiff in A Few Good Men, which is one of his very early works, by the time he gets to the West Wing, his characters are vibrant and powerful and flawed and complicated. It's incredible work. And a writer can spend her time in much worse ways than studying Aaron Sorkin. That said, as a writer, the man has weaknesses, writing women in general, and most especially with what he does to both characters involved in any romantic relationship. 
One of the classic Sorkin moves in relationship writing is the I'm coming for you, Jordan trope in which a woman rejects a man repeatedly and he refuses to take no for an answer. Instead of this resulting in a restraining order as it would and should in real life, the woman inevitably was either just playing games or finally breaks down and falls madly in love with the man who showed absolutely no respect for her wishes or boundaries. And then both people, especially in the longer range story landscapes of the television shows end up becoming brittle and shrieky together, almost as though the embattled territory of the yes made them both completely unsure of how to conduct themselves on that territory once that yes was obtained. That's not really the problem that we have in A Few Good Men. The romance here becomes a tacked-on obligation, completely unnecessary to the story, and thankfully mostly only hinted at rather than becoming a central part of the story. But let's start with the good stuff. Again, like Tangled, I won't go over what I've already discussed about the structure of A Few Good Men in episode 14, but I also hit on the protagonist problems in the movie, which is a big deal for writers. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I recommend it. Now, here's the thing about A Few Good Men. It's a good movie. It's a good story. It's charming and it's slick and it's fun to watch and fun to listen to. The dialogue alone is worth the price of admission. Now, I'm going to pull this curtain back for you a little bit, let you see behind the criticism how it works. That's the purpose of this advanced criticism series. Most of my thoughts on A Few Good Men come from the writing, the storytelling. But right now, I'm looking at the movie, which includes the cinematography, the acting, the overall gestalt that is A Few Good Men. I've been teaching this story for years in my screenwriting class. I honestly have not legitimately watched the movie in a long time. We work from the source shooting script. And as I started thinking about this critique, I got a little worried about it. What if I don't have anything else to say? And that is a common worry in criticism. And I'll tell you, it comes from a real place. Sometimes you engage with something and there's just not much there. So what do you do then when you don't really have anything to say? Well, you engage with the thing. You watch it. You stop thinking about what you're going to say and whether it's good enough. You just watch it and you take notes. So in that spirit, I'm going to read for you my actual notes as I actually sat down and watched a few good men. Not every insight that you're about to hear from me is going to be a gem. And that's okay. I want you to see what the raw material of criticism looks and feels like so that you can do it and then build from that something that is actually good enough to present to the public. All right. So here we go. Now, the extended opening with the military honor guard done in the falling dominoes style, what is that about? I mean, visually, it's cool. You've got that great snap and pattern to the audio of it, but it's an extended sequence to establish what exactly? The regimented discipline of the military? Huh, maybe. Captain, I'd like to request that it be me who's the attorney. And then we transition awkwardly from that into Joe's vulnerable pursuit of her goal and why in the ever-loving fuck isn't Joe the protagonist of this movie? That it be I who I'm assigned? That's good. That's confidence-inspiring. While I'm never going to argue that sexism isn't prevalent in this movie, the scene with the guys talking about Joe while she walks outside isn't particularly sexist. I could see them saying the same things about a man. I mean, come on, she's not a polished presenter, as we just saw with her awkwardly asking for the job. So it's not sexist until that one asshole says, Sir, I think there might be more involved than that. Don't worry about it. 
I promise you, Division will sign the right man for the job. I mean, why'd you have to ruin a perfectly acceptable interaction, porn stash? And now we get to super slick Kathy, who's almost too slick to be real, and unlike Joe, he has no motivation and no vulnerability at all. Sherby, does the Navy still hang people from yardarms? I don't think so. Dave sure doesn't think the Navy hangs people from yardarms anymore. But he's charming. It was oregano, Dave. It was $10 worth of oregano. Yeah, well, your client thought it was marijuana. My client's a moron. That's not against the law. So now we've got Daniel meeting with Joe, and she's providing all of the vulnerability and all of the motivation, and he's just there to be cute and funny and eventually take all the glory. Have I done something wrong? No. It's just that when I petitioned Division to have counsel assigned, I was hoping I would be taken seriously. No offense taken, in case you were wondering. Joe kicks ass. Kathy is a dashboard hula dancer. Danny. Commander, from what I understand, if this thing goes to court, they won't need a lawyer. They'll need a priest. No, they'll need a lawyer. We open with the prologue of Santiago being attacked, and then we cut to get this flashback of his letter, which we've already learned about, and move into Jessup's POV as he talks with Markinson and Kendrick about Santiago. Transfer Santiago. Yes. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure that's the thing to do. Wait. Wait, I've got a better idea. Let's transfer the whole squad off the base. Let's, on second thought, windward. Let's transfer the whole windward division off the base. Now, the scene itself is wonderfully written, and it gives Jack Nicholson a nice opportunity to chew the scenery and show us what a prick Jessup is. But it serves absolutely no function in the narrative. Flashbacks tend to be a weak narrative choice in general, but this one in particular feels wedged in and ultimately unnecessary. But it's my feeling that if this case is handled in the same fast-food, slick-ass, Persian Bazaar manner with which you seem to handle everything else, then something's going to get missed. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I allowed Dawson and Downey to spend any more time in prison than absolutely necessary because their attorney had predetermined the path of least resistance. Okay, this is why I love Joe. Wow. I'm sexually aroused, Commander. Fuck off, Kathy. One of the most popular responses in men who are intimidated by women who are smarter than them is to humiliate the women by objectifying them with a sexual comment. We'll see our villain, Jessup, do the exact same thing later, but somehow it's supposed to be cute and charming when Kathy does it. I want 12. Can't do it. They're called the ambulance, Jack. In the hall with Jack Ross, Kathy touches every donut on the plate before picking one up that is not okay. How's it going, Luther? Another day, another dollar, Captain. You gotta play him as they lay. What goes around comes around. Yeah, beat him, join him. At least I got in my hair. Well, you got everything. <laughs> see you tomorrow, Luther. Not about to see you first. All right, one of the things that I do love about this film is the cliche war between him and the guy at the newsstand. I think it's pretty great. You don't believe their story, do you? You think they ought to go to jail for the rest of their lives? I believe every word of their story, and I think they ought to go to jail for the rest of their lives. I love that Sam is an actual thinking person. He's funny, but he's not slick like Kathy. And his perspective on this whole thing is that even with the code red defense, what these guys did was wrong. But here's the thing. In the military, your job is to do what you're told without question. Earlier, we have that moment when Jessup calls Tom, played by Joshua Molina, into the room and says, Tom? Sir? Get me the president on the phone. We're surrendering our position in Cuba. Yes, sir. Wait a minute, Tom. Don't get the president just yet. Maybe we should consider this for a second. 
Dismissed, Tom. Yes, sir. And Tom, without a hint of surprise or question, just says, okay. That's for calling the president and telling him that they are surrendering the Guantanamo Bay territory. Giving a code red, especially when typically a code red seems fairly harmless. Of course, these guys wouldn't question that. But Sam's got a point, too. And that's what makes this a great philosophical question. I don't think there's a question about whether or not the code red is wrong. But the person who should be punished for it is the person who ordered it, not the guys who carried out the order. It's a nice philosophical sticking point, though, and you can make a really solid argument either way. Whoa, hold it. We got to take a boat? Yes, sir. To get to the other side of the bay. Nobody said anything about a boat. And here is one of the reasons to love a few good men. It's just funny. Just not that crazy about boats, that's all. Jesus Christ, Kathy, you're in the Navy for crying out loud. Nobody likes her very much. Yes, sir. At the time it came out, A Few Good Men was so sharp, so slick, so funny, while still being about real things and having a real bad guy at the center. But now, almost 30 years later, it comes across like someone just trying too hard. It's one of those movies that was very much a product of its time. Rob Reiner's direction involves extremely dramatic lighting and very practiced or controlled shots. We're so used to shaky handheld shots, that sense of seat of the pants verisimilitude now. But it's just as constructed and affected as what they did in the 90s. But after a few years of that kind of seedier pants stuff, this looks even thinner and more disingenuous than it felt originally. How the hell is your dad, Danny? He passed away seven years ago, sir. Don't I feel like the fucking asshole? Yep, Jessup. Yes, you do. Okay, now I know I'm getting older. When Jack Nicholson stood up in that scene, I thought, wow, Jack Nicholson has a nice ass. We agreed that for his own safety, Santiago should be transferred off the base. Santiago was set to be transferred. On the first available flight to the States, 0600 the next morning. Five hours too late, as it turned out. In this scene, it's very clear that Jessup is lying. We see Markinson bow his head as Jessup is talking. Plus, we learn later that he's lying as Kathy realizes it. There is absolutely no narrative need for that flashback that we had earlier. You know, it just hit me. She outranks you, Danny. Yes, sir. I want to tell you something, and listen up, because I really mean this. You're the luckiest man in the world. There is nothing on this earth sexier, believe me, gentlemen, than a woman that you have to salute in the morning. Promote them all, I say, because this is true. If you haven't gotten a blowjob from a superior officer, well, you're just letting the best in life pass you by. See, this is what I was talking about before. When Kathy objectifies Joe by making a sexual comment, it's supposed to be cute and charming. But when Jessup, our bad guy, our villain does it, suddenly now it's sexist bullshit. We have a complete double standard for this. Exactly how we get away with this double standard? I don't know. Regardless, in both cases, Joe is not taking the bait because she is awesome. But we still give the win to Kathy when he asks for Santiago's transfer order. Do you believe they have a case? You and Dawson, you both live in the same dream world. It doesn't matter what I believe. It only matters what I can prove. So please, don't tell me what I know and don't know I know the law. You know nothing about the law. You're a used car salesman, Daniel. You're an ambulance chaser with a rank. 
You're nothing. Live with that. Okay, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about how great the dialogue is in this movie. If this dialogue was a man, I swear I would marry it. And that probably explains why I should never, ever get married again. And when I talk about dialogue being a dance, dialogue as music, and Aaron Sorkin as being the master of this particular brand of the art form, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Now, the scene where Joe and Kathy go out to dinner is nice, and I almost always forget it when I watch the movie. But we get this lovely vulnerability from Joe. You sure hustled the shit out of him. Yeah, well, after that, they moved me to internal affairs. Not to blame them. Where I have earned two meritorious service medals and two letters of commendation. Why are you always giving me your resume? Because I want you to think I'm a good lawyer. And then we see that she's completely falling for his fast food, slick-ass Persian Bazaar charm. Why? Because he's Tom Cruise, I guess? I think you're an exceptional lawyer. I watch the court members. They respond to you. They like you. I see you convincing them, and I think Dawson and Downey are going to end up owing their lives to you. But it's a nice setup of the stakes and the value of fighting, even though there's no way you are ever going to win. I mean, let's pretend for a minute that it would actually matter to this court that the guys were given an order. I can't prove it ever happened. We'll keep doing what we're doing and we'll put on a show, but at the end of the day, all we have is a testimony of two people accused of murder. We'll find Markinson. Joe, we're going to lose. And we're going to lose huge. One of the things I love about trial movies is that lawyers are writers and trials are performances. The way Ross knows everything that's going to happen, everything that's going to be said before anyone says it, is kind of awesome. I hold here the Marine Outline for recruit training. Are you familiar with this book? Yes, sir. Have you read it? Yes, sir. Good. Would you turn to the chapter that deals with Code Reds, please? Sir? Just flip to the page of the book that discusses Code Reds. Well... Well, you see, sir, code red is a term that we use. I mean, just down at Gitmo. I don't know if Oh, we're luck then. Standard operating procedure, rifle security company, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Now, I assume we'll find the term code red in its definition in that book. Am I correct? No, sir. No? Corporal Barnes, I'm a Marine. Is there no book, no manual or pamphlet, no set of orders or regulations that lets me know that as a Marine, one of my duties is to perform code reds? No, sir. No books, sir. I just have to say, I am so glad that the scene in which Kathy chases Joe down in the rain is about the work and not about getting into her pants. Joanne! Joe, I apologize. I was angry. I'm sorry about what I said. I'm going to put Jessup on the stand. You weep for Santiago and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You All right, Jack Nicholson has three scenes in this movie. The flashback, the breakfast 300 yards from 4,000 Cubans who are trained to kill him, and the final scene in the courtroom. They're powerful scenes, but this is a testimony to the fact that an antagonist does not have to be a huge part of the story, as long as the power and influence of the antagonist can be felt in blocking the protagonist all the way through. Jessup's influence is felt through Ross, through Kendrick, even Markinson. Even though Markinson is on Kathy's side, when it comes down to it, he kills himself and refuses to testify because, I presume, it lacks honor. In the end, what matters is the influence of the antagonist, not the actual physical presence of the antagonist. 
I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. And in the end, even though Kathy wins, his clients are still found guilty of conduct unbecoming and are dishonorably discharged. It's a complicated win. They're found not guilty of the crimes that would put them in jail, but they lost their futures and the only thing that really mattered to them, the military. When you have a complicated situation like this with guys who did something bad, but they did it on an order from a superior officer, giving them a complicated win tells us that the storyteller isn't trying to give us a simple answer about what is right and what is wrong. I don't understand. Colonel Jessup said he ordered the code red. I know. Colonel Jessup said he ordered the code red. What did we do wrong? It's not that simple. What did we do wrong? We did nothing wrong. Yeah, we did. He was supposed to fight for people who couldn't fight for themselves. He was supposed to fight for Willie. By not giving us a simple answer, by not rubber stamping a clean moral judgment on Dawson and Downey, Sorkin is challenging the audience to think about it, to decide for themselves. And in storytelling, that's one of the most powerful things that you can do. You fucking people. All right, so that is a bunch of thoughts. Not all of them would make their way into a final analysis for me. I'd have to comb through them all, put the ones together that speak to certain themes, like sexism, perhaps, or the culture of the military, maybe. Chances are the cliche newsstand guy, much as I loved him, would not make the final cut. Although if I'm talking about sexism and the patriarchy, Kathy's classic male entitlement to touch all of the donuts has a fair to middling chance of making it through. The point is, when you're critically engaging with a piece of work, not everything you come up with is going to be something worthy of making it into the final analysis. But it's important that you allow yourself the space for all of your responses, even the ones that are about donuts. All right, that's it for today. This episode of How Story Works was brought to you by Chipperish Media producer Sarah from San Francisco. Sarah supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level and as a reward gets to produce whatever show she wants. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media and makes all of this possible. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you too can become a How Story Works producer. Our next movie in our foray into advanced criticism is the classic romantic comedy, His Girl Friday. I'm looking forward to that. If you have questions about how story works, call 302-643-CHIP. That's 302-643-2447. And leave a message. Or you can email me at Lonnie at Chipperish.com or contact me on Twitter at Lonnie Diane Rich or at Chipperish with the hashtag HowStoryWorks. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.